podcast for curious minds. And here's your host, Gary Cachulio. Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo, and before we get started, I want to thank my listeners for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are executive producers Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Ms. Aida, psychic and author of Hoodoo Cleansing Production Magic, also Damien Keller, binaural production engineer, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, and monthly co-host, Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. If you are interested in becoming a contributor to this show, go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com, and you'll find everything you need there. And now, without any further ado, our guest for today is Paul Wallace, and he has written a book called The Scars of Eden, and he also has a prequel to that book also. Thank you for coming on today. Good day, Gary. Thank you for having me on your show today. You're welcome. I'm excited to talk to you. So what is the premise um, of your series of books? Well, my books, Escaping from Eden and The Scars of Eden, tackle the subject of paleocontact. That is the theory that our ancestors had contact with other civilizations in the deep past. And my route into the topic has been out of the world of ministry. I was 33 years involved in Christian ministry as a church doctor, a theological educator, training pastors, and an archdeacon for the Anglican Church in Australia. And so for some, it it takes people by surprise that someone coming out of that background is coming forward and saying, on the basis of what's in the Bible, I've arrived on this territory of paleocontact, and here are the evidences I find in our ancestral narratives, the Bible included, and in other disciplines and cultures all around the world. Interesting. Um, I have a friend. Um, uh, how do I forget his name? His book's right here. Jim Willis. And uh, he was a Protestant minister for 40 years. And afterwards, he came to the same conclusion. So you're definitely not the only one. No, indeed. And in fact, I would suggest that most pastors who have done theology at a degree level, at least, would be somewhat aware of the footing uh, on which somebody might present this argument that, in fact, humanity has confused ideas of God with memories of ET contact, because we all have to study the possible sources of the ancient biblical texts, and they take us to the Mesopotamian stories out of Babylonia, Arcadia, Assyria, Sumeria, and those source stories are not God's stories. God doesn't figure in those stories, really. Those are stories of what I call sky people. Some people might know the name Anunnaki, Mm -hmm. people from another planet who came and occupied planet Earth in the deep past, and genetically modified our ancestors. That's how the root stories go. And once you see the connection, you either quickly move on and uh, get on with your work (laughs) of uh, building an organization and preaching next week's sermon, 
Or you think, Blimenak, at some point, I need to get back to that and work out what's the significance of that connection. Where does that rabbit hole lead? And I've been blessed uh, with the time through the years to do that, to come back to some anomalies in the stories we tell from out of the Bible, spot those parallels, and then ask the question, what are the implications of those parallels? Wow. Um, so you're saying that humans are not the result of a creation of God, God, like it, that's like in the book and story of Eden, like Adam and Eve and that kind of thing. And uh, well, you're also saying that, that evolution has some missing points also. Yes, that's quite a good way of putting it. Evolution has some missing points. If you go back to Plato, writing two and a half thousand years ago, and Plato is really without peer in terms of his importance in the development of our thinking as a civilization, he believed that we had been evolving happily on planet Earth, and then others arrived from elsewhere in the cosmos to modify what was here already. So the others who arrived, and he didn't say who they were or where they'd come from, just that they had not come from Earth. They arrived and they modified something that was already here, and by his language, it would seem a primate, hominid, and upgraded us to have a greater capacity for intelligence and consciousness and ultimately technology. So that early view, two and a half thousand years ago, was not a an anti-God position because he believed in God in terms of the source of the cosmos and everything in it. It wasn't an anti-evolution position because he believed life had developed on Earth, but he believed there was a gap in the story and that had to do with external interventions to tweak us into us as we are today. Mm. Now, I find that story repeats in ancestral narratives all around the world. It's not an idea that Plato came up with on his own. Mm -hmm. He had drawn that conclusion on the basis of scouring the world's wisdom, uh, every culture's ancestral narratives that he'd get his hands on, and he specifically names ancient Egyptian knowledge. Mm -hmm. And as I drill down into world mythology, that's the story I find repeating. And in Escaping from Eden, I argue that if we look again at some key translation questions in the Bible, it's a story that is embedded there in plain sight once we do the translation work. Interesting. Uh, I mean, yes, the, the version of sky people coming here has been found in all the cultures, Sumerian, Egyptian, even here in North America with the uh, Hopi Indians. Um, yes. Aztec, Mayan, is it all those cultures have the same stories. And also so all those cultures have some similar stories that are found in the Bible, such as the flood. Yes, they do. I mean, the flood is probably the story that uh, most readers of the Bible would know gets repeated around the world. But in fact, the correlations are prolific. And some of the detail in which these stories repeat from culture to culture is of a nature that clues us that what we're looking at is different cultures curating the same visual memory. So it's not that a story has gone around the world in a Chinese whispers kind of way, or text has gone around the world and been translated and retranslated, because each culture has different language and different metaphor, but they all seem to be describing something that was seen 
in the deep past. And what was seen, the story begins on a devastated planet, one that's flooded and shrouded in darkness. And then our ancestors saw something in the sky, a craft arriving that used vortices of wind to begin clearing land and terraforming the planet. And the correlations roll on from there. But that is where almost all our so-called creation stories begin. So if they were coming from texts, were they coming from collective memory or memory that's in our DNA? Oh, that's a great question. I think it's more nuts and bolts than collective memory. I think this is oral tradition that our ancestors saw and spoke of what they saw and the story has been preserved because it's been told often in a metaphorical fashion. So, for instance, if you go to the Philippines, their story of this craft in the vortices of wind is told as the story of a hawk that hovered over the waters and used its wings to drive back the water and create the land. When you tell a story in a visual way like that, it has far greater durability than if you're expecting generations of people to remember a form of words. So I think there's actual memory told in oral tradition. It's also there, of course, in our artistic canon. You can find carvings around the world that repeat the same story. But it's a good question about collective memory and um, epigenetic memory, because if you think about collective memory, as I started drilling down into the translation of the Bible, and this other story emerged, and then I realized that it paralleled in the Mesopotamian stories. Then I realized it paralleled in the African, Mesoamerican, Indian, Norse, Celtic. Beyond that, I started thinking, hold on, haven't I seen this in a movie? So when I read the Zulu story of beginnings with Unkulunkulu, arriving with all the familiar animals of the world in seed pods, which then burst open and then populate the planet. I was thinking, wasn't this in a Ridley Scott movie? I've seen this before. And I do think often in our storytelling, sometimes there's a very deliberate retelling of ancient mm -hmm. ancestral stories. And sometimes it's in our collective memory. We are downloading things we know as a species, and I do think that's a part of the picture. And as to epigenetic memory, something I talk about in the scars of Eden is what are the evidences today in our psychology as a species, in our geopolitics, that would point to our having been governed by non-human entities in the past. And I think our programming to serve superiors and to defer to others and to stratify into rank and class, I actually think that is something that's carried epigenetically. We were, according to the ancient stories, designed and programmed to be servants to the colonizers. And I think that aspect is carried on our genetic memory. Interesting. I want to rewind a little bit. Um, do you think any of the human epic could have actually started off planet and it's the reason why i asked this question it is because we are bipedal being bipedal is not the best design for the gravitational force of planet earth it would be much better suited for a smaller planet such as mars well that's an interesting question i was really surprised 
when I was researching Escaping from Eden to find the number of scientists, serious, credentialed, world-class, peer-reviewed scientists who argue for the view that life on Earth, all life on Earth, came here from somewhere else. And they argue for this theory of panspermia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And panspermia says that life in the cosmos is the rule rather than the exception. And that the genetic coding for biological, conscious, intelligent life has actually been seeded throughout the cosmos, or at least this this part of the cosmos. And that whenever it lands on a hospitable planet, essentially meaning a planet with water, it will generate forms of life similar to the ones with which we're familiar here. And so the concept there is that the, the coding for the things we see is far more ancient and widespread than our own planet. It means that ultimately we're all related to the other life forms that visit us. And it gives a little bit of light on why so many reports of contact report entities that are bipedal. As you said, it's, it's an unlikely design uh, for, for living on a planet with a heavy gravity. Right. But if we are willing to listen to report ancient and modern, then it would suggest that it's actually quite a popular form. And if we're all related, I could see why that might come about. There are some practicalities to it, of course. Um, we can do things with our hands because we're bipedal. And so we are more likely than a four-footed dog to produce fiddly technology, for instance, which then has a flow on to how our brains work, so on and so forth. And I remember as a child when I used to watch Star Trek uh, and saw all these bipedal aliens who looked like human beings in a costume or with some green makeup on, I used to assume this was because of the uh, small budget that Desilu uh, Studios had to operate with. Now I listen to the DNA researchers and uh, studies, the, the, the academic studies of DNA and genetic coding, that there might actually be some sensible thought and some science behind it. Hmm. Interesting. So, so you're going by the... the the theory of panspermia and it being in whatever genetic code landed on this planet to seed it. Yes, I find that very compelling. It is a theory that became popularized in the 1960s after Francis Crick discovered the double helix of DNA and won his Nobel Prize. He argued very strongly for that theory. Carl Sagan back in the 60s championed the theory Top scholars today in the field of uh, genetic research, Maxim Kukov and Vladimir Sherbak of the Fezenkov Astrophysical Institute and the Kazakh Al-Tharabi National University, they hold that view. So I'm in good company from that point of view. But also when I go back to ancient narratives, Plato talked about panspermia using the language of two and a half thousand years ago. Uh, the Unkulunkulu story tells a story using imagery from hundreds, maybe thousands of years ago. And so that makes some kind of sense to me, that we are part of the rule in the cosmos, not a unique exception. Hmm. So once we arrived in, we, we came into being as 
some type of hominid. We don't know what. We know there was a lot of different types of human hominids. We're discovering more every, just this month, I think we discovered a couple of new ones. Um, That's right. And uh, so, so we were all probably existing on this planet at, at the same time, too. And then the Anunnaki arrive. And do you think they had to select a particular group of hominids that was the one that was going to be the most likely to survive and the easiest to modify? Well, one of the most interesting iterations of this story comes from the Mesoamerican traditions, and in particular, the stories of beginnings that come from the Mayan tradition. You can read this in the Popol Vuh, and it's part of a family of narratives. Um, the Aztecs had a similar story. It's the stories of the feathered serpent, Kukumats, Kukulkan, right. a.k.a. Quetzalcoatl. And in that story, it again begins with a planet that's flooded and shrouded in darkness and then somebody saw things arriving in the sky and the people in the things were described as those who engineer and it says they had conversation among themselves about how to terraform the planet nurture life on earth and then at some point they say to each other let us engineer avatars for ourselves to do the work and bring us our food so they wanted a biological servant class. And the story is interesting because it says it took quite a while to get this right, that there was quite a series of experiments to produce Homo sapiens sapiens. And they began with, it seems, some kind of a primate, and that the experiments resulted in us plus a few ape-like creatures that live in the forest who weren't what they were looking for. Now, what's interesting about that is, first of all, it connects us with apes centuries before Charles Darwin did. It doesn't say we're descended from apes. It says we and apes are descended from a common ancestor, the one that they started the engineering work with, that it was a matter of splicing some of their own DNA into the genetic sequence for that primate. They produced some that were useless. I mean, if you can imagine engineering something like a gorilla and then finding out that it has no interest in working for superiors, it was that level of mistake they were making. Finally, they produced us plus a better precognition than we have, better ability to anticipate things, better remote viewing, better telepathic connection, um, better self-healing. Uh, they overshot the market, says. And that's rather interesting, and it suggests that they'd underestimated how much intelligence we were deriving from our animal heritage. And so having produced this species that's too clever, they realize we can't manage this population. They're too smart. They're not going to want to work for us. And so they have an emergency meeting to work out how they could dial us down to being a working class, so to speak. And the story talks about Quetzalcoatl going back in the lab and producing a vapor that when sprayed over human populations would essentially brain damage them and bring them down to the point where they were limited to their five physical senses or have to rely on an authority telling them what was what. And they found that easy to manage. And that story of upgrade, upgrade, downgrade 
is another echo. It's there in the Bible, there in the Sumerian, there in the epic story from Nigeria. It's there in the Greek story of Zeus and Prometheus. It's all around the world. And it's one of the clues that we are looking at a collection of narratives that have curated the same memory of our beginnings. Hmm. So the argument usually for this is, why would they waste so much time and effort making slaves when they're already a highly advanced civilization that would probably be able to find an easier way to do it than messing around with genetics for couple centuries well first of all i'd say what's a couple of centuries to us and what is it to another species might not be a long time and then i'd say well what is the easier way if you're wanting to harvest crops if you're wanting to mine in mines what is the easiest way i'd suggest they chose what they reckoned was the easiest we still use biological entities to serve us we use animals to work for us, and we use animals for food. So I, I think it's, I think you just have to take from the stories. They did what they wanted to do. They found it the most convenient way of occupying the planet, sitting at the top of the economic tree. Everybody needs a working class. Do we not have working classes in every culture all around the world today? So I don't find it too hard to imagine that a colonizing mm -hmm. force somewhat similar to ourselves, would want a working class such as the one all the stories say they generated. Yeah. And of... it's not without evidence. If you go to Southern Africa, mm -hmm. you won't have to travel too far before you find evidences of what we would call prehistoric gold mining on the southern cone of Africa, 200,000 years old at least. Now, science tells us that we were here at that time, that's to say our ancestors designed like us, built like us, not as clever as us, not clever enough to build a city or farm a farm, but clever enough to work in someone else's mine. And so from that angle and from the texts, it simply looks like that's what they did. They generated a working class and they did it genetically. So what are some of the things in the Bible that point to this, that people might not notice? Well, the key piece of the puzzle to find this story staring you in the face in the Bible is the translation of a word, Elohim. Now, it is a masculine plural form word that is sometimes translated as chieftains or false gods or demons, but sometimes it's translated as God i.e. Almighty God. Well, how do you know what it means in which text? And the answer really is that when the uh, Elohim appear to have the upper hand and be in charge, or well, you translate it as God. And when it's clearly on the wrong side, you translate it as demon or demons, except that doesn't airbrush out the problem because you still have God, in inverted commas, doing ridiculous and appalling things. If you translate Elohim as God, you end up with a God who's double-minded, has arguments with himself, thousands of humans get slaughtered in those arguments, he fails to anticipate things a child could anticipate, 
And it throws up the question of why. Why are we translating it that way? Now, there's a historical question. So in the Bible, you've got a collection of Elohim stories and Yahweh stories and stories from way back, stories from other cultures that migrated their way in, like the book of Job. And then in the 6th century BCE, and there's a very broad scholarly consensus around this, all those books and scrolls were edited and redacted to turn them into a seamless story of Almighty God, the source of the cosmos, and his special chosen people. And one of the ways they glued it all together and airbrushed over the differences was to import the holy name of God into older texts. So they pasted the name Yahweh into these Elohim stories. The problem with that is that the behavior of the Elohim doesn't change. So you still got Elohim genociding people. Mm. You still got Elohim who are utterly unpredictable, sometimes quite stupid and vicious and are against human progress. Airbrushing the name Yahweh over the top of those stories doesn't take away the problem of those stories if you're coming at it from a monotheistic viewpoint. Now, any preacher knows this. So any preacher, or indeed any parent who sat down with a child's Bible and a child will know this, because the child will say, why does it say, let us make? Let us make the humans to look like one of us, well, one of whom? And then when they're upgraded, why does God say, oh, now they're like one of us? We didn't want them too much like one of us then why does a loving God genocide everyone in a flood? And then why does a loving God bomb the human race back into a pre-Stone Age condition where they can no longer speak to each other because they've infringed a building code? It doesn't make sense. And the problems get worse the further you get in where you've got the God character doing unconscionable things. Now, church fathers right at the beginning of Christianity understood this problem. And a lot of them rejected the Elohim stories as God stories. And one of the most famous of these church fathers was Origen, who's regarded as the father of hermeneutics, the pioneer of the principles of interpreting the Bible. And he said, if we took those stories as accurate stories of God, we would have to believe of God things we wouldn't believe of the most savage and unjust of men. So he understood the problem. And the problem is we're telling stories of violent extraterrestrials as if they're stories of God, and they're not. And that's what my book, Escaping from Eden, really exposes. So as your time as, as a religious leader, what was it that made you change? I, I know with Jim, he was telling me that one day he just realized that he wasn't preaching the Bible, but instead he was... Um, defending the inconsistencies in the Bible and the things that didn't make sense. And then all of a sudden he's like, you know what, I can't do this anymore. Yeah, oh, well, good on him. I My story is similar but different. I never defended the inconsistencies, and certainly as a preacher, I was always very forward in pointing them out and saying, here's something we might want to drill down into. I'd point to other things and say, here are some things we can be certain of. But this is curious, isn't it? You know, Genesis 6, when some non-human entities turn up and hybridize with the human beings, 
This is curious, isn't it? I would say it might point to a populated universe or it might get to a story that talks about the God character doing something unconscionable, such as when he, he attacks King Saul because King Saul won't do genocide, violently slaughters the king of the enemy culture uh, in the most brutal way, and you've got to bring out a positive, therefore go home and do likewise story when you preach the sermon. Well, I never did that, and I'd always say, this is something tricky to do business with. Is God really like that? And I might just leave the question hanging. Now, most preachers who would take my approach would also make a mental note, gee, I must drill into that at some point, work out what's really going on there. But most preachers are just kept too busy to be able to do that. And if you're leading a congregation, the great imperative is to hold that congregation together and help it journey together. And sometimes drilling down into these questions can be very, very controversial and is very likely to split your congregation. And so there's a pressure on a lot of pastors just to focus on the stuff that's more unifying, the stuff they know, and leave to the scholars to drill down into these other questions. And unfortunately, scholars are bound by exactly the same fears of losing their job and keeping tenure, so on and so forth. But like Jim, I think you can only do that for so long. If there's something you've spotted, you've got to get to the bottom of it. If there's something that's not making sense, you've got to drill down into it. And as I say, my gift was having the time to do that. In Escaping from Eden, I talk about suffering a, an ultimate Frisbee injury, and then having to convalesce from it and taking time out for some weeks in my shipping crate cabin. And it, that's a true story, but I really use it as a metaphor for all the times the universe has gifted me with the opportunity to draw aside from the, the, the pressures of resolving all your thinking on a weekly basis so you can preach a sermon and really taking an extended time to say, wait, what are the implications of these parallels? What really is going on in the Elohim stories? Why did some of the early church fathers reject the whole idea that these were God's stories at all? And when I did that work and came to my conclusions, I thought, well, this is a journey I have to share because a lot of believers notice the inconsistencies, the moral incongruities, and we've seen over centuries the result of not doing the math, of believing in a violent, unforgiving, brutal God. If your God is like that, and you worship that God, then you can draw a straight line from that to every abuse, violence, invasions, all kinds of wickedness that's been justified in the name of God through the centuries of history. Hmm. Um, at this time, when, when, when you started thinking about this, were you familiar with any of the other works that were out on this type of subject, like the works of like Zachariah Stitchin and Von Donegan and Graham Hancock? Eric Von Donegan, yes. Uh, because when I was 11 years old, my mum and dad introduced me to his work. And uh, what I liked about what he wrote in Chariots of the Gods was what you said, Gary, earlier on, that he'd put his finger on a gap 
in our ability to explain ourselves as an intelligent, conscious, technological species purely with the model of evolution. There really is a gap there. I mean, we are the alpha species on planet Earth only because of our higher intelligence and our technology. And I found that evolutionary theory couldn't really explain how we got there. If you or I were left out in the wilderness on our own without any technology, after three days, three nights, we'd either be ill, deceased, or in hospital. All the other animals are perfectly adapted to living on planet Earth. So how did we get here without our technology? We're useless. And as a boy going to a Church of England school, you had the scientific explanation with that great gap in it. And then you had the religious explanation. Oh, well, we're a special creation mm. of God. That's the case. It's so obvious that we're some kind of primate. Why is it so obvious we're some kind of an animal? Eric von Daniken put his finger on that gap and he asked the question, would we not explain ourselves better by allowing for the possibility that there were interventions in our development? And then he pointed to possible corroborations of that idea, evidences all around the world in different cultures. So I read that at a, for me that never quite went away. And I remember as a, I became a Christian when I was about 17. And I remember showing my friends enthusiastically one morning, look what I found in the Gospel of John here. It, Jesus is saying, I have others who I must bring with me as well so that we may all be one. This must be ET life, I said. Well, they quickly explained to me that if I was to be a proper Christian, I needed to put question to one side and that must surely mean something else and when i pointed to genesis 6 and i said look there must be aliens hybridizing with the humans well it's possible but we don't really want to think about that just focus on the gospel paul and so i understood oh okay so if i'm going to be kosher in the christian world i can't talk about this except my questions never went away so i was always considering what are the implications of these and just waiting for the time to drill down into that so i was aware of eric von daniken's work in a funny way it was through reading charities of the gods that i, I became a christian because it got me asking ultimate questions zechariah sitchin i had not heard of when i started writing escaping from eden and i got part way through uh, writing escaping from eden when i started coming across his material and i thought oh I'm not the first person to think this. Should I stop? And should I quickly read up on all of his books so that I can work out what's going on here? And I thought, no, I'm not going to do that because I want to follow my own logic here. I'm coming from a theological start point. I want to follow my own logic, show my own maths, reach my own conclusions. And then if those line up in any way with what Sitchin said, then that becomes interesting. And that will be interesting for the reader to say, this person from this start point, this person from this start point, have like a 70% overlap in what they're saying. That's far more interesting, I thought, than writing a he said, she said kind of book. And so that's what I did. And it now gets me into very interesting conversations with people who are fans of Sitchin and ask me questions about things he's written. Uh, but I felt it was important to do that. Otherwise, I felt I would be adding nothing to the conversation. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad I took that decision. 
So you haven't read any of it even after publishing your work? I have now read uh, parts of Sitchin. I've not read his entire canon because since publishing Escaping, uh, it's been an absolute roller coaster of the work that's followed and writing the sequel. So I, I know enough uh, to know where we overlap. Some things he said that are conclusions I haven't reached, some conclusions I've reached that he didn't. And so it's still just an interesting crossover that I'm I'm coming across. But I'm not an expert in Sitchin uh, by any stretch of the imagination. But his was certainly an historic and very important contribution because what he did was to bring to a popular readership the E.T. implications mm -hmm. of the Mesopotamian stories. Now, what I talked about before, the parallels between the Bible and the Mesopotamian stories, that information had been in the public domain kind of from the 1830s, but big time since the 1890s when Nathaniel Schmidt started writing papers as a uh, seriologist, uh, a teacher of ancient languages, first at Colgate University and then at Cornell. And he pointed out the parallels in a way that made fairly obvious to anyone reading that the biblical stories are based on these stories of sky people. So from the 1890s, that was out in the public domain, but it was Zechariah Sitchin who said, hold on a minute, everybody. Do you not understand the implications of that? because the sky people were extraterrestrials. And he forced people to do business with that, whether they did business with it by trying to debunk him mm -hmm. or did business with it by thinking about the implications. Right, yeah, yeah. He put the question out there. <laughs> Maybe he really he question did. It. Um, so then obviously the, the next question is, where did the sky people go and why did they leave us here? Yes, it's a fascinating question. When I read the stories of the sky people, I realize very quickly that we're not reading about transcendent, per perfected beings uh, of some kind uh, who constantly move in an amazing level of enlightenment. We're actually looking at another species somewhat similar to us. Their behavior is quite understandable from a human perspective. And so it's very possible that they invaded planet Earth, colonized it, and used it in a way that's rather similar to the way we invade each other's countries. So just think about for a moment how we do it. When we invade someone else's country, we go in by force, we make ourselves very visible with guns blaring and uh, cannons firing. The locals cannot match our superior technology and so we take over. We are the army. Everyone else is an insurgent. We are the police. Everyone against us is a criminal. We are the teachers. We are the bankers. One of ours is the governor in the governor's house. And we start taking from that country everything we want in terms of cheap labor and in terms of minerals or foods. So we go into Brazil, we take cocoa and sugar. We go into Southern Africa, we take gold and diamonds, so on and so forth. But once we have got that traffic of commodities flowing and set the commodity prices and the exchange rates and set up the banks, which we're now in charge of and are in obeisance to our banks, 
so on and so forth. Once you set up the legal system and are sitting at the top of the economic tree, by the time we've done that, we can let the locals appoint their own teachers. The locals can become police. The locals can become the army. Finally, the locals can appoint the governor. And we can go home and still benefit from sitting at the top of the economic tree. This is exactly what the British did with Africa, for instance. So it's quite possible the Anunnaki did exactly the same. They came, they set up the systems, they got the commodity flows going. Maybe they got everything they needed and then went home, or maybe they appointed viceroys and then went home. The Sumerian story talks about a crossover king, King Gilgamesh. Prior to him, the governors are Anunnaki with phenomenal lifespans, and then after Gilgamesh, we've transitioned to human kings. Same story in the African narratives, in the Egyptian narratives, same in the Bible, where we have God reigning directly, then the crossover king is Saul, and then human kings after that. That storyline suggests they may have left viceroys in place who were governing on their behalf with them back on their home planet. And some believe that's the situation we're still in. And that's why the ancient and traditional concern of not alloying royal blood, where all that comes from, to keep all the power in the same family's hands. So there are two possibilities. They came, they got what they wanted, they went home. Or they came, they appointed their deputies and went home. But the going home seems to be a part of the story. And certainly looking in the Bible, you reach a point where the Elohim are no longer visible. They, they've left communication devices behind. The Ark of the Covenant, the Urim and Thummim, others with their totems. But they are not visible and are nowhere to be seen. And so because that's been my route in from those kinds of traditions and texts, that's my bias. That's what I think has happened that they came, they colonized, they benefited, and then they went home. So do you think that there's still any interaction between them and some of their maybe original bloodlines that they put in power? I think it's very possible. But reading the ancient texts about what they called the Sky Council, uh, this council of ET demographics all bumping up against each other as they compete for hegemony. They've all got hands-on somehow in Project Earth. The ancient stories suggest a few ET demographics. By the time we get to the 21st century, and we're beginning to hear disclosures from Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev, former Prime Minister of Russia, or from Haim Ashed, the former uh, chief of space security for the Israeli military. He was the brigadier general, held that position for 27 years. They're talking about far more species being in contact with us than that. And if you've got an intergalactic council, which is what Haim Ashed, that's the language he used, comprising several dozen ET demographics, then it's possible that the Sumerian Anunnaki don't have as big a sway over planet Earth as they did back in the day, and that we're looking at a rather more complex picture in modern times. Do you think they could have been run out of town by other extraterrestrials? It's very possible because so many of our ancient traditions talk about a war in the heavens. Uh, 
a literal war, a violent war using technology among ET demographics. Now, some of those stories are told in great detail in the Sumerian story. It's there in, in the story of the kings in the Vedas. Others say there is a a cosmological aspect to those stories and that some of the warfare stories may be an allegory of violent things that happened in our solar system as planets interacted and swapped places. And that may be so. And I know that's something that Sitchin gets into and that Velikovsky wrote about. But starting at a fairly plain reading, say the Sumerian texts, I would say, yes, there were conflicts there were battles that may have driven some of the Anunnaki, and that word really just means astronauts, you could translate it as, people who came from the heavens. And yeah, maybe they got run out of town. Um, so what do you think about the UFO sightings that currently happen now? Do you think that's the same people, same group or of aliens that engineered us? Or do you think that we're dealing with other species that are just curious about us, maybe some that even want to assist. Yes, I think there's a great spectrum uh, of other entities, other civilizations who are interested in us and are interacting with us. You could reach that conclusion simply by listening to contemporary report, but those contemporary reports really echo stories that are thousands of years old, and so you could get to that conclusion by reading ancient texts. Um, I agree with you, Gary, that some may be here because they have a positive nurturing relationship towards us. You mentioned the stories of the Hopi, uh, the Cherokee, the um, Mohawk, the Mohican people. They all have stories of visitors coming from outer space in our deep past and nurturing our beginnings as human society. Specifically, we have stories of people coming from the Pleiades and teaching us how to live on this planet, live in harmony with nature, how to cultivate crops, some for foods, some for medicines. We have the stories of Oannes and the Apkalu coming, and this is from the top of the Fertile Crescent, southeast Turkey, coming and teaching us how to farm and build cities, teaching us how to use a money system to manage society and then how to create banking and legal systems, that's all in that story that's told there. Stories that Carl Sagan was really interested in and said we ought to study them to understand where we've come from. So we've got those positive interactions. I mentioned earlier that so many of our creation narratives begin with others arriving to help the planet after a cataclysm, after it's been flooded and shrouded in darkness, they've come to help, much as we go into other countries to help then recover from tsunamis and earthquakes and the like. On the other hand, there are other stories, contemporary and ancient, that speak of entities that seem to have no fellow feeling with us at all. And I talked about the wars of the Elohim in the Bible, where these powerful ones send their humans out to war against each other with no account of the human cost of their squabbles. So that alone gives you the sense there is a spectrum of agendas. And as I got into the preparation for the scars of Eden, I realized that the abduction aspect of the UFO phenomenon and contemporary report is also ages old. Every culture all around the world has stories of abduction, 
for hybridization. And again, it throws up a whole spectrum of agendas as to why visitors would possibly want to do that. What would humanity have to offer the gene pool of ET neighbors? And it's a question that will be thrown up by the ancient stories of almost any country you choose to visit on planet Earth. Why do you think they are still abducting humans and studying us? I mean, if they created us, they would already know. Well, again, you say if they created us, but it would be specific ETs who played a part in our story. Mm -hmm. And then there'll be others who haven't played a part in it. So there will be some who have more knowledge of us than others. It would be logical to say. But it's possible that some are hybridizing with us because the way we turned out is actually pretty awesome. But there's something unique about Homo sapiens sapiens, that something about the blend of our earthling heritage and our ET splicing has created something special, that the fusion of our animal strength, mammal emotion, higher consciousness has produced a species with an unusual capacity for compassion, imagination, love, creativity. And I think that is true. I think we have a unique contribution in that sense. There may be some who are interested in us for that reason. Uh, if, if you think of the character of Mr. Spock in Star Trek, he's absolutely intrigued by human emotionality and the way love operates and the way people will risk a whole number of themselves to save one. I think that is something that's special about human beings. But there may be others who are here for more prosaic reasons, and that is their gene pool may be too small. They may be a dying species, and they may need to enrich their gene pool in order to survive, and they like the look of us. The Genesis 6 story says the ETs who turned up then to hybridize did that because they found human females drop-dead gorgeous, and they said, let's have some of that in our gene pool. And others may lack the physical robustness that we have, and they want some of that. Some of them might want to live here. And if they're going to live here, they'll need a bit more earthling in them for that to work. So there could be this whole spectrum of reasons. And as you listen to stories from Africa, the Caribbean, India, the Philippines, Greece, Europe, uh, the Norse countries, the Celtic countries, these are the possibilities suggested by their ancient stories of abduction and hybridization. That's the best answer I've ever gotten to that question. Oh, good. Thank you. Uh, it was because you cover every possibility and you don't discount any of them. I, as you know, I, I totally, it's just, it was a good answer. <laughs> um, so, one of the things, like, do you think it is possible that some of these aliens um, are actually were once human? I mean, there, there, there's evidence on in, in archaeology, um, or, or especially like even like in the in the Hopi story, that there were four epochs, and we're the fourth one. So, in the, in the three others didn't make it, but there was always survivors left to start over for each one. Do you think that, that some of those may have evolved far enough to go off planet and, and because of being off planet and living in space or in a, in a different gravitational environment, they, they, they changed 
you know, physically as he reproduced over generations and generations. And then they want to come back because maybe what they've changed into isn't so good. And they want to get some of their old DNA back. Yes, those are really interesting ideas. And they do have some footing, I would suggest, in evidences that we can point to. So first of all, the idea of epochs. It's there in the Vedic tradition. It was there in ancient Egyptian thought. Plato refers to it. He says he got that idea from ancient Egyptian thought, and he believed that every few thousand years, our planet is impacted by the movement of objects in space, impacted to the extent that civilization has to reset from a virtual zero. So he believed there had been a sequence of civilizations on planet Earth. If you listen to uh, original Australian story, they carry stories that suggest a memory of the time when the continents separated. Well, that doesn't relate to the timeline for Homo sapiens at all. Nothing we know about Homo sapiens could make that possible because that's before the age of the mammals, before the age of the dinosaurs, before anything we know about life on Earth. And yet again in the Bible, you will find a couple of verses in Genesis 9 and Genesis 11 that suggest exactly the same thing. We're told in the beginning the land was all one and had one coastline. So there's your picture of Pangea. And then it says it was in the generation of Peleg that the lands separated. Well, who was here then? Not us. How could that knowledge survive? Well, the knowledge could possibly survive if previous civilizations reached a spacefaring capability. Now, we wouldn't know this because if there was life on Earth in the geological past, all the way back then, the only evidence of it would be in millimeters of mineral sediment by this right. point. We just would not know unless somebody else told us. You go to Genesis 11, read that in parallel with the source narratives in the Sumerian, it becomes clear we're not the first space-faring civilization on this planet. Now, if we go to archaeological evidence, Southeast Turkey, I mentioned before, because that's where we believe we can identify the beginning of the civilization we do know about. We find the evidence of the first farm. And this was a team from the University of Az in Norway and the Max Planck Institute. They went in in 1998, headed up by Manfred Hoyne, and they identified this site at Karakadag, a place where one tribe, or possibly, Manfred Hoyne said, possibly one family, worked out how to genetically modify 11 naturally occurring plants so that they could be cultivated as crops. And they also worked out at the same time how to do animal husbandry. So a pretty clever family. And then that information peppers up all around the planet really, really quickly after that. And so they, they said, look, there's the beginning of our civilization, because with farming comes surpluses. With surpluses comes specialized society. With specialized society comes cities and everything we identify as civilization. Fantastic. Except drive about 800 miles down the road and you'll be in the same country when you reach Gebekli Tepe a megalithic site. So here you've got a culture 
building a massive megalithic structure, 50 times the size of Stonehenge by the time we've excavated it all, with suggestions in the artwork of a culture that spanned the globe, because the same emblems occur in other continents uh, produced by other cultures. How is it then that we've got a civilization starting down here about 10,000 years ago, and the tail end of a megalithic one just down the road, because the timelines overlap. So that archaeology points to what you're saying, Gary, about the possibility of a previous civilization being adjacent to a new one. So who taught animal husbandry? Who taught genetic modification of crops? Could it have been survivors from the culture that produced Gebekli Tepe? Because there's a specialized society. And so, yes, I think there really is some currency to saying previous civilizations may have left survivors who nurtured the next civilization. And evidence is to suggest previous civilizations were spacefaring. I point to the ancient texts, but then, of course, you could go into Mesoamerica, look at the air, look at all the carvings of astronauts' helmets, um, people in craft that can fly, and again, it raises the possibility of a memory or a knowledge of previous space-faring civilizations. So I, that's where I've reached. I haven't found anything solid to say, yes, they left, evolved, and returned. But I can see those pieces of the puzzle when I look at archaeology and ancestral narrative. At which epoch do you think the ETs intervened and started modifying us. You think it was from the very beginning? I think it's ages old. The texts that I've read from Mesopotamia, Bible, Mesoamerica, do suggest, and African narratives too, a number of different interventions and very probably by different ET demographics. And that's just Homo sapiens. Uh, what happened previously to previous civilizations? Well, that's another question, but very possibly this very populated cosmos we live in is one where there's actually a lot of toing and froing among the species occupying the cosmos. One of the things that I always find curious is um, we only use about 15% of our consciousness. Um, do you think that that is a result of them trying to um, make us just loyal, obedient slaves? Well, if I believe the Mayan story, yes. And if I believe the epic story from Nigeria, yes. If I believe the biblical story properly translated, yes. And what that's talking about specifically uh, is intelligence, dialing down the intelligence. And I mentioned the Mayan story, the vapor to brain damage us. The epic story from out of Nigeria talks in vaguer terms about the engineers releasing something into the environment, some kind of device that would damage the mental health and mental acuity of human beings to make us more manageable. Now, what's curious about that is that it says our natural state is more conscious, more intelligent, but that something external is done to keep us down here where we can be managed. 
when I was writing Escaping from Eden, I came across this syndrome that is studied by genuine, serious, peer-reviewed neuroscientists, the syndrome called acquired savant syndrome. And that is where somebody will suffer a head injury or a central nervous system event that you would expect would leave them damaged, but they come out of it able to speak a language they couldn't speak before or able to play a musical instrument they couldn't play before or with a phenomenal ability in mathematics or artistic skills um, or advanced physics. And Daryl Trefford at Marion University has studied more than 70 of these cases. It's absolutely mystifying. How can an injury extend your intelligence and extend your cognitive abilities? And these scientists are very open in saying it's a mystery. It appears to be a disinhibition of brain systems that we're looking at. Well, any layperson hearing that will say disinhibition. What are inhibitors doing in our brains that they can be switched off by accident? And the scientists baffle at this, but our ancestral narratives have an answer. And that is that all our brains are designed to operate at a higher level. They've been deliberately switched off here and there to make us more pliable and compliant and amenable. But the potential remains there. And every culture that's curated these stories of our beginnings that say, we were upgraded, upgraded, and then downgraded, also curate shamanic and mystical traditions aimed at switching these abilities back on, switching our precognition back on, switching our remote viewing back mm -hmm. on. And I find it interesting that those two things culturally appear to go together. And most of us, I would say, have glimpses of these other bits of our brain starting to work. Almost everyone will have a story of, I knew who was calling me before I picked up. I knew something had happened to my son the moment it happened, even though he was on the other side of the world. I knew that my relative had just died, though it was from out of the blue, and I knew at the moment that it happened. Uh, stories of telepathic connection like that, precognition like that, remote viewing, uh, which I've experienced to a degree, and my children have as well, in the past, I would have these glimpses and say, oh, well, this must be happening because I'm super spiritual and God is equipping me uh, for my ministry. And then I started noticing, actually, everybody has this. And the question is, can we develop it? Can we switch more of our brains on? And my studies in the shamanic and mystical tradition suggest, yes, we can. Yes, it is all there in potential. And we must learn to operate our brains more fully, not just for the sake of having superpowers, but for the sake of living more intelligently on this planet and more intelligently as a society. If we do that, though, that would be the biggest threat to whoever wants to control us. <laughs> well, yes, it would. It makes me think of um, that movie Gladiator where we have a Caesar who understands that if he can pe keep people distracted enough, keep them entertained, then they can be managed and he can get away with murder. And that's kind of a rather uh, mythological way of explaining how the world works. 
that all governments would rather have absolute power, thank you very much. All governments operate with us on a, a need-to-know basis, and so non-discrimination line. And so having us overstressed, over-busy, they might not have to release devices into the story, uh, into the environment as the story of the ethic goes, although that might be a part of the picture. People are concerned with what's in our water, what's in our food supply, why are we finding heavy metals in our fish, in our soils, so on and so forth. What is in the water that might be damaging our brains? I think these ancient stories are given us so that we'll ask those questions so that we will not be too compliant and too amenable to the powers. Well, I know here in, you know, in the U.S. they put fluoride in the water, and one of the reasons that they say it's there is to keep the pineal gland calcified. I've heard that theory, and I am not a great fan of fluoride in the water. I'm not a great fan of chlorine in the water either. So I, I drink cask water because I want to drink the best water I possibly can. So do my kids. My animals drink the tap water, so they're not too worried about it. But for me, even the taste of uh, chlorine in the water, I can't drink that. And I think we should, we should really pay very careful attention to that because the level of toxins that are permitted in our foods and water, I think would shock people if they looked into that and made a personal study of it. And I, I'm old enough to remember the 1970s when journalists had got a hold of research that was pointing to the possibility that leaded fuel was brain-damaging our children, that children growing up in urban areas or going to school in schools surrounded by idling traffic were less intelligent and more aggressive because lead in the atmosphere was brain damaging them. Now, obviously, at the time, everybody said, oh, wild, crazy conspiracy theory, but congratulations on the journalists, they had it right. And it's why today we're driving cars that are hybrid cars and that use unleaded fuel, because we were brain damaging our children. Now, that ought to be an experience enough to say, let us look very carefully at what we're releasing into the environment, into the atmosphere, into our food, into our water, and what's the cumulative effect of those things? Because that's really the study that's missing. Who's going to pay for that? Mm. The cumulative effect could be very damaging to our mental health and acuity. So we eat genetically modified food. But kind of like what the Anunnaki were doing to us was genetically modifying us. Um, do you think that uh, like those types of foods are bad? Like, like they're, they're altering the human species somehow? Like if we're altering the DNA of food and then we're consuming that food, then that further down the road it's going to alter us. Well... That is a serious concern, and I want to approach it from a couple of angles. And let me just start anecdotally. I remember going to Singapore on holiday in the 1970s and noticing that the young generation were twice the height of their parents. And I did some research on that and found out that's because the diet had changed, that 
the younger generation were eating volumes of meat that their parents could only have dreamt of and that this was producing a generation of kids twice the height of the parents. I live in Australia, and when I go and pick my kids up from school, I see these enormous beings walking down the street in school uniform that are bigger than anything that was at school in my day. Kids in Australia today are becoming very large, and we're seeing forms of obesity that I've not seen before. So when I was a boy, uh, a fat person, you're not allowed to say that anymore, are you? Was a certain <laughs> shape. A fat person was, was a fat shape, and you know what the fat shape was. But we're seeing shapes now that are new, that uh, are to do with male bodies developing female chests, female hips, and it's... It's quite disturbing when you see this happening with young people. It's not happening because they're eating too many crisps. It's happening because of something else that's in the diet. It's not that they're eating more meat than their mums and dads because Australians have been avid meat eaters for a long time here. There's something else in the food supply that is impacting the shape, height and health of our young people. And I think we ought to be very concerned about the long-term effects of eating foods with the suicide gene in it. If we're eating foods that are infertile, what does that do to us? And is that in any way connected with the falling fertility that we're suffering as a human species right now? So that's one angle on it. Another angle is this, that again, my start point is <clears throat> ancestral narratives. Go to Native American story, go to Aboriginal Australian story, and we have accounts of people arriving from the Pleiades to teach our ancestors how to live in harmony with the planet and how to cultivate crops. These are ancient cultures. There's been a continual culture, human culture in Australia going back more than 60,000 years. So that's an ancient intervention we're being told about. Go to Karakadag and the story of our Anas and the Apkalu. That's a more recent intervention, maybe 10,000 years ago, because it was an intervention made after the most recent Ice Age. And what were they taught? They were taught how to genetically modify those crops. They were taught money, legal systems, banking systems, all the accoutrements with which to build um, industrial scale farming and cities. So you've got two quite different models of farming. One, tens of thousands of years old, that is natural, organic, uh, rotational, combination farming, the traditional model. And then you've got this other that leads to the GM, industrial scale, petrochemical model of farming. And right now in the 21st century, they are colliding. The industrial scale is trying to obliterate the natural, organic, rotational combination farming. And I would suggest it's a war all of us should take an interest in because I think the old way is better for our health than the GM way. And it comes, and this is what I argue in the Scars of Eden, from two different ET interventions in our story. One with a bit more sensitivity and empathy than the other. Do you think that um, is 
really makes me think. Like one of these, like I've always kind of thought, like uh, you know, well, like all the people that I see walking around, you know, I've wondered, like, is that a real human or is that a genetically modified human? <laughs> you know, but now you make me think, like that the whole genetic modification is just happening naturally. Well, not naturally, but unnaturally through the foods that people are eating. But however, we may have never actually been human. We may have always been some type of genetically modified human from the very beginning. Well, our ancestral narratives say that we are all hybrids. Uh, It boils down to that. We're all earthling with a bit of ET and maybe from various ET demographics. So yes, we're a blend. But my concern with what our foods might be doing to us and other things in the environment is to do with our health. Are we going to enjoy our life on Earth or are we going to be sick? Are we going to enjoy our life on Earth or are we going to be morbidly obese? And I think these are the concerns. Uh, Are we going to be able to have children naturally in a couple of generations' time? We ought to be very concerned about that and for all those reasons be asking a lot of questions of the petrochemical industrial GM approach to farming. It is definitely concerning, that is for sure. Um, do you think there's they're cloning humans? Um, well, yes is the short answer, in the sense that I take seriously the abduction narratives that are ages old and that are contemporary, and they do talk about the extraction of genetic material from us in order to produce hybrid beings. So you could call that cloning, possibly. Um, I mean, there's a technical definition to cloning, and and that might not fall into it. You might just say, oh, well, that's in vitro fertilization. If you do in vitro fertilization with something other than a, a sperm, then it's cloning. And I think it's entirely possible. And if we can clone sheep, why on earth would you do that? Then it's not a stretch to think, yes, that might be an aspect of the hybridization program that's going on. Hmm. Do you think there's a secret space program? Well, that's become a bit of a code uh, for a number of interesting things. At one level, yes, I think we are in contact with other spacefaring civilizations. So yes to that. Yes, I think we have technology that we've derived from that contact that we are experimenting with. So yes, in that sense. From that, yes, it's entirely possible that there are missions going on that we don't know anything about. Um, But some use that phrase, secret space program, to talk about something else that I don't know about and haven't found any evidence for, and that's to do with um, people's consciousness being harvested and taken off and used on other planets and then returned. Mm -hmm. That's not something I've come across in ancient memory uh, or anything I've got any solid footing for. But in terms of contact and technology, do we have covert operations? Yes, I think so. Do we have covert projects that piggyback on the back of projects we know about? Yes, I think so. Do you think that ties into cloning? Because I think the best people to be involved in those programs would be people that are not going to tell or people that they people don't even know they exist. So why not just make a clone to use them in that secret space program? 
Well, I could follow that logic, absolutely. I just don't have any evidence that mm -hmm. would uh, support that. Right. Yeah, it, to me, it just it just makes sense. <laughs> like, because one of the big holes, like in the whole secret space program, is like, who's going to keep their mouth shut, or or why don't we notice these people missing? Well, the answer would be for me would be, well, they're not really people; they're they're using clones. Yes, and again, I think if we're willing to listen to people's report. Um, there would be plenty of stories of people who've had encounters with entities that were clearly not human, and then there were humans in their company, mm -hmm. but who didn't seem to have the normal kind of empathy. And that, if we're, if we're willing just to listen to a report and say, let's take it at face value or consider it a possibility, then that would support what you're saying, I think, Gary. Hmm. Interesting. What do you think, you know, you mentioned the consciousness thing. I've interviewed a lot of people that say that they are starseeds. They're either um, Pleiadian starseeds, Arcturian starseeds, Syrian starseeds, and probably a bunch of others that I don't even know of. <laughs> um, do you think that these people are making some type of telepathic connection with extraterrestrials that want human beings to extend to another dimension? Yes, I do. I think... The telepathic connection is, is well worth mentioning. Firstly, people might not know that back in the day when we were still trying to find out what the UFOs were. Now, remember, before 1947, that was the public position, that U.S. defense was trying to find out where the UFOs were coming from. We were trying to apprehend them. We were trying to shoot them down. And when we find out, we'll tell you. That was the position until 1947, the day after Roswell. All that changed, and another story came in, and the National Security Act was signed that laid the foundation for the CIA and for the classification of all official research of UFOs. At that time, government money was being spent on trying to get communication going with these UFOs telepathically. So that idea was taken very seriously back in the day. In the Bible, you can go to a, an often neglected text in the New Testament, 1 John 4, where the writer says, and it's so interesting that this was part of the experience of primitive Christianity, the writer says, don't believe everything a spirit tells you. Weigh it up. And if a spirit comes along and just trashes Jesus, don't pay any attention to it. Now, that's interesting for a couple of reasons. Firstly, it absolutely affirms the experience of channeling, of telepathic communication. It also says just because something is telepathically communicating doesn't mean you can trust it and doesn't mean you give up your own mind or common sense or sovereignty. Do your own thinking. Do your own homework. It also doesn't say what these spirits are. Who is it that's communicating telepathically? Is it a disembodied spirit? Is it an energy-based being? Or is it another being like us, but one that can communicate telepathically? It doesn't say. It just says, stay on your toes, stay alert, be a bit discerning. And so for that reason, I, I, I take the idea of the telepathic communication very seriously. 
What was the other half of your question, Gary? I'm having a senior moment. Yeah, I, I forgot too, but I have another question anyway. Because sure. what you just said led me into another direction. One of the other things is this multidimensional aspect. Do you think that uh, sometimes we are dealing with, with beings that are not just from another planet, but from another dimension? Yes, I do. And again, uh, it's an ancient idea. The original Australians had the story of the dreaming or dream time. The ancient Celts have the story of the seething. And those concepts are very similar to each other. And what they say is that there is another dimension similar to this, but that is out of phase with this one. So if you imagine the material realm that we're familiar with is on a, a sine curve. Every, everything is a vibration ultimately. Matter, energy, light, sound. But everything's on this curve. If there's another one that's out of phase, then the only points you'll become aware of it is where those curves cross over. Mm -hmm. And both the ancient Celts and original Australians have story that speaks in those terms. And so they had shamanic and mystical practices that were aimed at shifting the brain, the, to use modern language, for it, shifting the brain waves of the person to a point where they can begin perceiving things in the other dimension, seeing things, hearing things, being influenced by things in the other dimension. Why would they have that story? I find it uh, really compelling getting into those texts, seeing the parallels on opposite sides of the planet. And then, if I can return to my favorite person, Plato, he again talked about shifting the brainwaves of the viewer by ingesting a psychoeffective tea that was called kaikion, that was part of the Eleusinian mysteries in ancient Athens. And he writes, he writes in the name of Socrates, but he, he describes this with such internal detail that I think this was an experience he had himself, where the impact of this psychoeffective tea was that he could begin perceiving other kinds of entity to the point where they could have conversations and where he could get information from beings in this other dimension. And so the idea of other dimensions that can cross over with ours, that can interact with ours, but for the most part we're unaware of, these are ages old, and people in the present who do ceremonies like the ancient Kaikion one come back with the same report, that they came in contact with other entities who had intelligent conversations with them to the point that they are back in their normal day-to-day -day life and they're going to do things differently in the light of the things they learned about themselves through those interactions. Interesting. Where do you plan, um, with, with your books, um, where are you trying to take people with your books? Like, what is the message? Like, what is your end goal with your books? Are you trying to just get people to ask specific questions to question all these myths is it just getting information out there or um are you trying to bring some type of awakening to help you know move civilization forward in a way that we're going to evolve and not de-evolve yes well my answer is yes uh, to all of those <laughs> uh, basically as a writer i am sharing my own journey so if I learn something that I find to be earth-shattering, I'm going to share that journey. 
when I wrote Escaping from Eden, a big motivation of mine was I think it's going to become more obvious that we're in company in the cosmos, and I don't want people to be um, to have their worlds blown apart by that or suddenly find that they're disoriented and, and frightened. But to understand this is the situation, our ancestors spoke about it, it's there in the Bible, and I think you should know about it. But by the time you get to the end of Escaping from Eden, you realize I'm also interested in all of us switching our brains back on, learning to operate at a more conscious, more intelligent, more harmonious level. And then with the Scars of Eden, I go further, more widely around the world, more deeply into ancestral narratives. I look at what are the, what's the programming we've inherited from that paleo contact, which of it is helpful, which of it is not. Again, how can we operate more intelligently as a society? And can we start to share our own stories with each other? Because I believe there wouldn't be a friendship circle or a family circle anywhere that if you sat them down and said, have you ever experienced something you couldn't explain and you don't know what it was and it's always bothered you? Every circle would have a story and possibly every individual. And those stories would quickly point to the fact that we're not alone on this planet. And again, it invites the reader to develop their awareness, their consciousness further. The, where it's going is in the Scars of Eden, I talk about the accidental and the deliberate ways in which the knowledge of who we are has been expunged and excised from mainstream conversation. And you talked earlier about wouldn't we be harder to manage if we were more intelligent? Well, yes, we would. I think we'd be far more equipped to live on this planet if we know who we are. So why has that knowledge been taken away and suppressed? And in the sequel to The Scars of Eden, I asked the question, what other information was suppressed along with our ancestors' knowledge of ET contact? Because it is all about knowing who we are and what we're capable of and how we can have a better human experience on this planet. Do you plan on writing any books with some type of uh, methods or exercises to help people open their consciousness? Ah, well, this is where I'm going in the sequel to The Scars of Eden, that we're going to get into what are some of the things our mystical and shamanic traditions have curated for us, things we can do from day to day and week to week to switch ourselves back on, make ourselves less manipulatable, more conscious, healthier, and happier. Awesome. So before we wrap this up, where can my listeners find you? If you go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kindle, Hive, Book Depository, wherever books are sold, you'll find The Scars of Eden and Escaping from Eden. Get into those. And if you'd like to talk to me about what you're reading there, I love having conversations with my readers. Go to The Fifth Kind TV on YouTube the Paul Wallace channel on YouTube, and I'm always there in the comments having conversations with people. I do do personal coaching with people as well who are processing this kind of information or if they've had a close encounter or some other anomalous experience. I work with people to help them process that and uh, get their feet on the ground again, get their reorientation happening. For that, go to my website, which is paulanthonywallace.com, Anthony with an H, Wallace, W-A-L-L-I-S, paulanthonywallace.com, 
and you can reach me through the contact page there. Wow. Well, thank you, Paul. This was a fantastic interview. I'm glad you took the time out today to talk to talk with me. Oh, thanks, Gary. It's been a pleasure, and I'll look forward to our next conversation. Absolutely. And just hang on for one moment. I'm going to play the outro. And uh, just so my listeners know, this outro is a little bit longer than the one you've normally heard. However, the frequency behind it is a binaural beat, which is designed to open your third eye. So I hope everybody digs it. All right. <laughs> www.everythingimaginable2020.com mm-hmm.